Hello, Mighty Parents, and thank you for being here today as today's show is incredibly important for every parent to listen to. The CDC has reported a huge surge in self-harm and hospitalizations from poor mental health among our teens in 2020. Back in 2018, the CDC had revealed that teenage suicide rates had increased 76% from 2007 through 2017, and now the pandemic has taken a huge toll on teens' mental health and rates have risen again. Overall, the number of psychiatric-related hospital visits among young people increased 31% in 2020. I'm not saying this to scare you. That's not what I'm about here at Mighty Parenting. I'm telling you so we can change this. While I know that suicide and other mental health issues can be difficult or scary topics, I also know it's important to talk about because depression, self-harm, addiction, suicide, these are things that thrive in the shadows. They thrive when people don't acknowledge and discuss them. This is definitely an arena where knowledge is power and discussion makes a difference. So today, during Suicide Prevention Month, I am sharing Dr. Leah Gagino's interview on mental and behavioral health and suicide ideation. You may have heard it on episode 123. If you did, I still encourage you to listen again. Every time I listen to an interview, I learn something new or something different stands out to me or at least it reminds me of what I learned when I listened to it the first time. I'm also asking you to share this interview with two other parents so we can create awareness and stem the tide through knowledge and communication. So thank you again for being here, for taking the time to learn, to practice, to improve your parenting skills right alongside me and the rest of the Mighty Parenting community. Remember, you are a Mighty Parent. You got this. Thanks for being here. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, stress relief coach, emotional wellness speaker, and host of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. Thank you so much for being here and for your support of the show and MightyParenting.com. You are the reason I do this, and I love doing this, and receiving your notes, reading your comments, the reviews that you leave online just makes my day. So I wanted to take a minute and thank you for doing that and encourage you to keep on doing it because I love having communication with you guys, whether it's through reviews and notes and comments or the Facebook group, whatever. I love hearing from you and touching base. Today, we are getting a peek inside a doctor's mind to find out what we all need to know about our teens and their health. We are chatting with Dr. Leah Gagino, who has a, she's been a general pediatrician for 31 years. Her personal passion has been children's mental health, adolescent health, and suicide prevention, knowing that the emotional well-being of children is at the core of their health. She serves as faculty for the Zero Suicide Institute, has worked with Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which you would likely know as SAMHSA, 
and she's worked with them to create a practical guide to youth suicide prevention in the primary care setting and was a content expert for the American Girl, The Caring and Keeping of You, the body book. And Leah, I love that you are taking time to be with us here today. I so appreciate you making room for Mighty Parenting. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So Leah, you say that emotional and physical health are one in the same. Would you elaborate on that for us? Sure. I think with, um, you know, medical training, we really focused a lot on physical health and learn a lot about disease. Mental health was always a separate topic and one that, at least when I trained, was a fairly small part of what we learned. And really what we know right now is that about a third of the visits to pediatricians and primary care is for behavioral health and mental health concerns. So it's become a third of our business and our practice. And I think a lot of times we're really underprepared for that. And it's not like you can leave your mental health or emotional health at the door. So whatever condition you have, whether it's, um, you know, asthma or diabetes or whatever, that your emotional health, if you have depression or anxiety, we know the outcomes are worse. And if you have good emotional health, you tend to do better. So we really have to look at a whole person and quit trying to, you know, above the, above the neck and below the neck kind of a <laughs> No, I and I love that above the neck and below the neck. And I'd like to actually unpack a couple of these terms because not everyone's familiar with them since our culture is not huge on discussing mental and behavioral health issues. So first of all, could you give us an idea like what is considered a behavioral health issue? Well, I think sometimes mental and behavioral health have been kind of interchangeable. Mental health disorders, I think really people think about mental health diseases or um, things that fit the criteria for, it's it's called the DSM-5, and that's the psychiatric manual. So if you look at the psychiatric manual, for example, there's nine symptoms of major depression, and you have to have a certain number for a certain amount of time to have a di- to meet the diagnosis for depression. So there's that sort of disease model. And then behavioral health is really what are the behaviors that are exhibited and are problematic and affect function. And so that can incorporate a lot of stuff. Just because a toddler is having temper tantrums doesn't mean that they have bipolar disorder. So I think they're really you know, there's mental illness, and then there's behavioral health concerns and questions. And, um, you know, again, somebody who's having an adjustment reaction, you know, the, if you're talking about young adults, I see a lot of kids that are gone off to college, and they come home in that first semester, and they're just tanking, and they're, you know, have a lot of anxiety symptoms, and they may not have an anxiety disorder, but they're really distressed. So it's not really mental illness, but it's, and kind of an acute stress reaction. So kind of like I have a cold versus I have pneumonia. They're, they're really not the same thing. They're, they're kind of on the continuum. Is that? Well, and behavioral health disorders or behavioral health concerns, it doesn't necessarily mean that that there isn't a continuum of severity. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you think about, for example, something like autism, and we refer to it as autism spectrum disorders because there is a wide variety of what that looks like. So some kids with autism may have some kind of quirky social things and some unusual language features. And then there are other kids that are completely nonverbal, really aggressive, and have a lot of behaviors that cause problems with function and social and all that. So I think really behavioral health just encompasses a lot more. And I think it's more um, inclusive than just saying like mental illness. Okay. And, and it seems to me that, you know, as parents, we can sometimes ignore things that we should be looking at, or we can get hyper-focused or really stressed out about things that really aren't a big deal and our kids just need a little support. So as someone who is working with parents with their teens, or as you know, we said also our 20-somethings, what are some, some signs that our kids could have a situation going on that we need to give them a little support. We need to help them find some new tools that, for example, you talked about kids coming home from college. And I think a lot of that comes with the anxiety, the stress. They come from the kids just not having all the tools they need to manage what's happening at that moment in their life. And so I'm curious what um, what types of situations, you know, we should as a parent go, oh, I need, so I need to help them find resources. Well, so that's a, it's a lot to answer quickly. I think they're sort of like back it up. One is that, that might help just to give a framework is I think if you set the stage that it's okay to talk about your thoughts and feelings, then, and, and that's just a habit that you've had all along, then I think it makes the conversation easier. And it's not like all of a sudden you ask your kid out of the blue hey, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Not that you shouldn't ask that question and ask it directly if you have concerns, but if you just go from like zero to 60 and you've never had conversations about, you know, feeling sad or feeling angry and that it's not okay to talk about that, then, then it's difficult. The other thing is you know, kids' brains are under development, and I think we have to remember, especially with teenagers and young adults, is that even though they can be really bright and really smart and really good at a lot of things, their brains don't function like an adult brain. And the prefrontal cortex, which if you put your hand on your forehead, is right behind that, is all your decision-making. And it's the part that makes you kind of pause and think through a decision and it's the smart part of your brain that doesn't really develop fully until around the age of 25. On the other hand, if you look at the brain and you think about the brain as if you make a fist with your hand, so that's the, the main brain. And then as you go down the wrist, the deep part of the brain, it's called the amygdala and that's the reptilian brain. That's your, um, like your, your, basic most emotions. And that's where things like rage and um, joy, intense emotion comes from. And when the amygdala fires, it overrides everything else. And so if you can imagine, for example, 
you get, say you get stopped by the police because you were speeding and the police officer comes up to your car and gets angry at you about something. As an adult, you're not going to think, I'm going to punch this guy. I mean, you sort of stop and go, hmm, you know, in this situation, I should pause and, you know, take my pulse and be calm. In a kid, sometimes that amygdala, that reptilian brain, just goes on fire and they can't think straight. And so your kid who otherwise you think, you know, should be able to make good decisions doesn't. And I think of it like it's why kids do stupid stuff. Um, they just don't think straight. And I think if we can give them grace and just say, hey, they're not under, if it, they're not functioning with a full deck in terms of regulation, it helps you understand and it helps you take pause before you really engage a kid. So I think just having that model of brain development is really helpful when you're thinking about kids and emotion. The other thing that I love to do, and you can do it with little kids and you can do it with adults, is I call it sad, mad, and worried. So and I, I do this with kids all the time. I say on a scale of one to five, how angry are you? One, not at all. Five, I want to punch people and the police are at my house or I'm getting kicked out of school or whatever you know you want to use. I'm worried. One, not at all. Five, I worry about everything, bad things happening, what people think of me, my safety. And then sad, one, not at all. Five, I have thoughts of killing myself. And kids can invariably, even kids who have some cognitive difficulties, can answer those questions, or you can draw smiley and sad faces or angry faces, because I do it with those pain faces all the time. And it's a really nice way to sort of get a temperature. So you can always ask your kid, how are you feeling today? And just let them pick a, pick a face. And that kind of gives you a start. I love that because it's also kind of a quick thing. You know, a lot of times our teens don't want to interact with us, especially if they're feeling sad, mad, and worried. They, they want some space, they want some autonomy, or they're having these feelings and don't know how to express it, how to have a big conversation about it. But being able to give them the freedom to go just pick a number, and then if they mm -hmm. want to talk, that also is opening a door for them. To, it's kind of inviting them in to say, hey, you know, we can talk about this, or I get that. And it might even, it's, if you're really struggling with a kid in particular, you can have, you know, a way to communicate it. Like, just tell me what your day's like today. Pick a number, draw a face, whatever it is. And, um, you know, it's just a way to sort of know where you're starting from. And, I, you know, like, so when I'm with kids too, I'll ask them that. And then sometimes I'll say to the parent, do you agree with that? And they'll be like, no, her her worries like a 10 or, you know, so the kids don't always have great insight, but it's surprising how distinct they can be about a certain emotion. And they'll say, well, it's like a two, two and a half. Um, and I kind of liken it to, you know, one or two is pretty normal. Five's really bad. Three's half the time I feel crappy. And then, you know, four is like a lot and five's like, it's, this is a big problem. Um, and so I think it, it does give you kind of a nice little framework and then you can spring from that. And I mean, certainly if a kid says, 
a four or five on feeling sad. I think it's really important that all of us have the language to ask a really simple, straightforward question about, are you having thoughts of suicide? And really, I think the way to ask that or just to frame it is a lot of times when kids or adults or people are struggling with emotions like that, um, like you're having, they may have thoughts of killing themselves. Have you ever thought about that? People are really scared to use that language and it takes practice, but it's really, really important because they've done some research and about 17% of high school students have had thoughts of attempting suicide. So it's really, really prevalent. It is. And I would appreciate it if you could address, you You said, you know, it's important that we ask this question and use these words. And I know that when I first became involved in suicide prevention work, I I was concerned about it and I had to dig in and look at the research. So could you share with us why it's important to actually use those words? And, you know, many parents are afraid if I say this, I'll put the idea in their head. Could you address that for us? Sure. So I would assure you that you don't make somebody suicidal if you ask them if they're having thoughts of suicide. It's not like all of a sudden they're going to go, oh, that's a, oh, I had never thought about that. Um, And it's really important that you use the language either of killing yourself or thoughts of suicide, depending on who you're talking to. Because, and, and I certainly use this language in the past was like, are you ever, did you ever wish you weren't here anymore? Well, you know, if they're in my office, yeah, I wish I weren't in your office. Um, or if you're having thoughts of harming yourself, harming yourself and killing yourself can be two different things. They might be the same thing, but, you know, self-harm might be cutting or burning or other things like that. So I, at the bottom line is we really want to know, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? And if you are, how bad is it? How bad, what do we need to do about it? And I think that's really something where primary care, we're getting better. It's it's an uphill climb. We're getting better at knowing how to address it. And that's really kind of my life mission right now is to help primary care folks know how to assess because just because someone's having thoughts of killing themselves or suicidal thoughts, doesn't necessarily mean they need to be in an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And in fact, that might not be the best place for them. So in the past, if someone said they were having thoughts of suicide, it was like a knee jerk, like, well, you better go down the emergency room. And, and really, honestly, since we've been addressing this in my practice, I haven't sent a single kid to the emergency room in over two years from my office, not saying that kids don't show up in the ER having tried to take an overdose, that's a little bit different. But just thinking about it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to, but we don't know until you ask. And my understanding is exactly what you said, that just because someone had the thought of killing themselves doesn't mean that the ER is the place for them and can actually make it scarier and more difficult but parents are scared. So if, if our kid answers us and says, yes, I have, what does it make sense for us to do? Well, I think the first thing is that you want to, I think, take kind of check your own response first, because if a a kid or a young adult or a friend or um, your spouse, whomever 
feels like, oh my God, you're so overwhelmed. There's no way I can talk about this. They're, they're going to clam up. And what we really want to do is make sure that we're open to it. So I think part of it is um, asking, have you had thoughts of killing yourself? Do you, have you thought about a plan? What would that look like? And, you know, have you made any, like anything to move towards that plan? How likely are you to want to kill yourself? And, and have you ever done that before? Because, for example, if I'm 17 and I just broke up with my boyfriend and somebody asked me, are you having thoughts of killing yourself or wish you weren't here anymore, you know, going to sleep and not waking up, I might say, yeah, this hurts so much. I really don't want to, to you know, I just wish I didn't have to deal with this and I wish I wouldn't wake up. If the next question is, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? Have you made a plan? No way. I would never do that. Why wouldn't you do that? Because I, you know, I have my whole life. That's very different than the kid who you ask and they say, yes, I've had thoughts. Do you have a plan? Yeah, my dad's got a gun. Where's the gun? It's under my bed, which this was a kid that I had. Um, and I, you know, I'm, that is a highly lethal situation. That's a very different situation. The other thing I think families have to think about, and this is not a Second Amendment right issue at all, is that if there are guns in homes and someone is having a mental health issue, behavioral health issue, that in and of itself ups the risk of suicide because firearm deaths are so lethal. And deaths by firearms are predominantly suicides. So my word of caution is if you have a firearm and you're concerned about your kid's mental well-being, get it out of the house until you figure things out. And a lot of times people say, well, I've got it locked up. It's safe. If I can't sleep at night because I'm wondering if they can find it, I've had kids tell me like, I know where the key is. I could get into the room. Um, it's hidden in the closet. I know where the ammo is. If they can figure that out, now you have, you know, do you want to have a child that killed themselves by a firearm? 80% of firearm deaths in kids um, who kill themselves by suicide, the guns belong to the parents. So again, this isn't a, a, a gun rights issue. It's a safety issue. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty vocal about it in terms of how can we problem solve this? I mean, if I'm just mad about it, that's not helpful. But if I'm serious about I'm really worried about your child's safety. Let's talk about how we can can make your child's environment safe. And you're not saying don't own a gun. What you said was get it out of the house. And you can leave it with a relative or a friend. Police departments will oftentimes be willing to hold it for you. If you know, you can contact them and ask. Um, there will be somebody who would be willing to hold that for you. You weren't telling us that, as you said, it wasn't a second amendment right issue, whatever, whatever anyone's belief is. The research shows that restricting means restricting our children's ability to access or anybody's ability to access the means for attempting a suicide reduces the number of suicides. And it's, the other comment I hear from people is, well, if they want to, they're going to. And, and, that, that's, and that's not just not true, true either, right? 
most people, most people don't want to die by suicide. They just don't want to be in so much pain and suicidal thoughts ebb and flow. And they often reach a high point. And if you have access to a means that's lethal, then you, you may have missed the mark. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't know how I could live with myself if my child shot themselves with a gun that I owned and I didn't do something when I had the opportunity to make my child safe. And I actually want to toss in a note here to um, my Mighty Parenting co-founder. She has shared on the show before that her son attempted suicide. And prior to him doing that, he hid his pain so well Nobody knew. He's a drug and alcohol addict and his friends didn't know. He was the designated driver when they went out in the evenings. Hmm. He would drink alone after everybody else had gone to bed or whatever. The other thing that she didn't know until they started doing public speaking was that he had he was going to attempt suicide with a firearm from their house. His sister happened to just call him at that moment. And so the parents didn't suspect anything. He didn't show signs that they were aware of, you know, that there was an issue. So even if you have older kids and they hunt with you or whatever, even if you don't suspect an issue, if you're going to have guns in the house, do not let the kids know anything about them. And as you said, Leah, if you have any inkling that there could possibly be a problem, store them in a different location, in a different building so that um, they can't reach it. And the other thing is medications because there are so many medications out there. My husband and I talked about that and we said, you know, at first we just didn't think about it. And then I went, "Um, honey, we really need to not have your meds sitting out. So can you talk to us a bit about that? Absolutely. So there's a really great if you're interested from certainly from a clinical standpoint it's called calm or counseling access to lethal means it's online at the um, suicide prevention resource center so sprc.org and it's an online course and it's really good about talking about lethal means access there's also a site called means matter and i think it's put out by harvard and there's tips for parents and tips for clinicians one of the things that I learned that I didn't know, because I would just say, well, yeah, go get a lockbox. Well, honestly, I didn't really know what that looked like. And one of the things that they talked about was using just a regular toolbox with a padlock, and which I think is brilliant because it's accessible and it's relatively inexpensive. But any medication, particularly narcotics, um, can be lethal in large amounts. Um, one thing that should not be locked up is things like EpiPens because you, and then an inhaler. So the chance that you're going to overdose on an EpiPen because it's a single use um, or, and if somebody used it and it wasn't theirs, it's going to make their heart rate go up, but it's not going to kill them. And an inhaler, you know, the chance that you're going to die by suicide using an inhaler is pretty minimal. So other than that, if you have concerns, you would want to secure all your medications, including over-the-counter medications. Um, for If you have a spouse or an older adult and they take medications regularly, you might just dispense like, you know, have a pill box and just do a week at a time. 
Um, it's harder if it's somebody like a kid who's away at college, but you might, you know, have a conversation with like a roommate. Can you hold on to these medications, um, you know, and, and help them with that? So I think there's some different ways to do that. But yeah, medications are one of the most common means of an attempt. But in terms of completed suicides, it's firearms. And the really sad thing is um, suffocation, mostly by hanging, is the most common and becoming more common. And that one, of course, is really hard to restrict because you can hang yourself with so many items. And particularly in younger kids, it, it's the most common means. So I think if you if a kid has said, this is what I would do, you have to secure your environment as much as you can, but then you really have to be on high alert. Okay, so we were talking about if we ask our child, you know, are you thinking, have you thought of killing yourself? Are you thinking of killing yourself? You gave us some questions we can go through, starting with check our own response, because it's scary. So it's okay mm -hmm. to take a minute and deep breathe or correct me if I'm wrong here, but we're talking about teens and young adults. So to take a moment and just say, you know, I am so sorry that you're hurting so much. Absolutely. And, and just take that, because um, it also gives us another moment to collect ourselves and it lets them know, yeah, we care. Well, and I think not only in that, I'm so sorry that you're having so much pain, but I'm so glad that you told me because we can help and I'm here with you and I will, I will work with you to figure out how to get past the pain and I will find people that can help us. One of the things that you can do if you're a parent and you don't know what to say or do, you can do use two strategies. One is you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, um, which is 1-800-273-TALK or 8255. And you can get a professional on the line that can talk you through it. You could put them on speakerphone and say, hey, my son just said that he's really having thoughts of suicide. I'm his mom. I'm really worried. Can you help us? Or the other is there's the crisis text line, which is 741741. And I've actually done it in the office with a kid as a test. And they were like right back on, replied to me right away. Are you okay? And you can just go step by step. I think another way to introduce that to kids is to say, hey, if you have a friend and you didn't know what to say, and you have that crisis text number, you could crisis text them and ask, what do I do about my friend? So I think it's a good way to introduce it to kids and get them to load it into their phone. That's what Judy and I did when we started doing suicide prevention work is talk to, because kids may talk to a friend and you want your child to be prepared if somebody comes to them. You want them to have an idea of what to do because it is it is a very scary thing and if you've never thought about it before and suddenly somebody says something to you you're not going to just automatically know what to do so you've given us some things that we can walk through what would we then do because we've said you know if they aren't if yes if they are injured if if they attempted and they're injured or if they are in danger then 911 or the emergency room is what you need but aside from that, where can a parent turn to, to start getting some help? Well, there's a couple of things. 
I can speak to the work that we've been doing in our practice, and I think it's becoming more of a practice is that if you have an embedded mental health person in your practice, so in our office, we have a social worker, and we do what's called the Columbia Risk Assessment Tool, we, which basically walks you through what I mentioned before, like, do you have a plan? Do you have intent? And then we do what's called safety planning. And that's really a tool to say, hey, when these thoughts creep up and they peak, what are some things that you can do to walk your way back down the peak until that feeling passes? And then we really try and hand off to another mental health professional, or um, we make sure that we do follow-up calls, um, and I think just touching base. Uh, I think certainly as a parent, I would want some additional help. And I think at least using the crisis lines, it might be able to help you sort out, you know, can this wait till morning? Is this something I should do right now? Most emergency rooms will at least have a social worker do an intake if there's a concern. Most of the time kids get discharged from emergency rooms, but at least you have somebody else to assess it. So I think it depends. If you really don't know and you're worried, I would default and go to the emergency room. But a lot of times, if you can buy some time and you really have an idea of how high is the risk and you've done things to make your environment safe, you may have some time to, um, you know, access a mental health person, a therapist, somebody at the school um, that could help you with that. So we're talking about you know, college kids who are away from home, they're on campus. That's one situation. Our, obviously, mm -hmm. our high schoolers, tweens, even younger, sadly, um, if our kids are at home with us, it would be reasonable if we had this conversation, our child said yes, and you know, say it's evening, it would be reasonable for us to secure the home, stay with them, because all mm -hmm. we need to do that night is keep them safe. And then the next day we can start making some phone calls to mental health professionals in our area or start with our doctor's office. So let me ask you this because um, we had a little interaction with our doctor's office on a mental health issue and, and they tried, they tried their best, but unfortunately they did not have at that time, they did not have really good skills or training to deal with it. So is it reasonable to contact our doctor's office and say, this is my situation and I don't know if you guys are the right people for me mm -hmm. to work with? I mean, me personally, yeah. I mean, the reality is this is what parents do all the time anyway, um, is to call and ask because I, again, I think it depends on where you are. It depends on the practice. Um, as far as what resources are in your community. Um, if you're in a very rural area, your resources are going to be very different than if you live in Grand Rapids or Ann Arbor. Um, in our area, one of the other resources is um, Mobile Crisis, which is through the community mental health organizations in Kalamazoo County. And this is it's all in Michigan, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Leah is in Michigan with me. <laughs> Sorry. So in, in our region, I mean, we call... Um, our mobile crisis, and they will actually go out to the families' homes. They've even come to our office. Um, so it varies by state, but community mental health is another option. Um, if you call the emergency room, they're going to tell you to come in. So again, I think it depends on where you are and what you have. 
the kind of the buck stops at the emergency room and that may be where at least you can have somebody ask questions. Although again, I would say if you're in a rural ER, they may not have social work. Um, there are going to be more and more um, options through telehealth. Um, and I know our organization, for example, you can do telepsychiatry, but sometimes you have to schedule those visits or telepsychology. So there may be more and more options growing. Um, so I, I think you just have to kind of ask, I think it's reasonable to ask your physician, wh where do I go? And, and, and I wish, I mean, honestly, it's my life mission to make the answer to that. Yes, absolutely. And your doctor will know what to do. Yes. And, and, you know, it's not, it's not that they don't care. They weren't trained. And so no. we need to all help get them get trained too. But that is one of the other things that I like about the crisis lines. And we will have links to both. We'll have the phone number and the texting number in the show notes. In fact, that will be in the show notes on every podcast player, as well as on the website. Usually the detailed show notes, you have to link through the website, but we'll make sure those are on there. But um, when you connect through the crisis lines, they filter down to local areas. And so they, it, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding was that they can help you get resources. And I know I was talking to someone who, who works the lines before and, you know, they had someone call in and really their issue wasn't um, a mental illness issue. It was just, they were under so much stress because they needed other resources. They needed to get hooked in to how they could get um, food resources and money to help pay their heating bill. And, but those stress levels had risen so high around their financial situation that they were thinking about killing themselves. And when all they needed was to find out how to hook into their local social service resources. And that number's 211. Yeah. That okay. So that's the that's 211 that mm -hmm. I was thinking of. That's it. And 211 is good for resources. They may also list some local resources, um, counselors and things like that. Um, and so they may kind of direct you or trunk you over to that. Well, that's what I was going to say, but if you called, if you, if you have thoughts of suicide or your child has thoughts of suicide and you call the suicide hotline, that's still appropriate to do. But one yes, of the things absolutely. they will do is they will triage and they will filter through to help figure out first and foremost, are you safe? is whoever is whoever has had a suicidal thought they're going to help make sure you are safe and then work you through like you said the safety planning and and get you through those steps and sometimes it is getting you moved over to a different resource and that's one of the nice things is they can go more local right right so i i think you know worst case scenario uh, you know maybe you know they do need to be in the emergency room best case scenario is they're able to help you know, talk the person kind of down from that really high risk point and really kind of set the stage for what are the next steps and is the environment safe? And, and that buys you, that buys you time. Um, and, and the vast majority of folks are not imminent risk. They're not that high imminent. So that was the other thing that I wanted to do is, okay, let's back up our train a little bit. And if we ask our child, have you thought about killing yourself? Their answer to that question, we've gone through this long chain of if they answer yes, what do we do? Because most of us don't ever have that conversation. And they may answer no, 
but that doesn't mean that they don't still need some additional help or resources. So if we're finding, I would think that if we're finding over a period of time that we keep getting threes, fours, threes and fours from our child on these questions, or if we are um, finding that in that in this moment they're giving us fives, maybe not over such a long time, that they need something else. And so as a parent, it would then be a matter of helping to figure out what, what they need. Is it just, like you said, a bad breakup and this is really just for a few days or a week and what they need is some emotional support and they need mom or dad to love on them a little bit, that's fine. But if we see this ongoing, then we need to perhaps start helping them learn some emotional coping strategies or finding out if there's something in their life, in the design of their life that is impacting them badly. Is that correct? Yeah. And I would say we've been doing lots of screenings. We, we screen and it's recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics that we screen our kids 12 and up for depression at least once a year. And what we found, and it's pretty hard and fast, 25% of our kids are screened and positive. Most of those, about 15% have suicidal thoughts. So most don't, you know, that means 75% of kids don't meet depression. What's really common is anxiety. And I think that there are definitely some things and strategies that you can help with kids. Um, My favorite ones are um five four three two one mm-hmm. those five cents the five senses and i'll um, and we've done this before what i'm going to do mighty parents is i'm going to explain that in the show notes and exactly perfect. how that works so that you have that written out for you is a phenomenal tool and i've done that in the office you know like you know just real quick five things you can see four things you can hear three things you can smell two things you can taste one thing you can touch because it, it Get your mind off the worry go round and the other square breathing mm-hmm. um, and, you know, breathing around, a, you know, in your mind, imagining a square, hold, you know, take a breath, hold your breath, um, let your breath out, hold a breath. Um, that sometimes just those simple things will get you through the moment. Anxiety disorders are really, really responsive to therapy um, and particularly cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think a lot of times we are quick to want to use medications because it feels like it's quicker. But if you really want somebody to get a handle on their anxiety for a long time, um, you know, therapy is the way to go. It takes time and it can be, you know, maybe costly. But if you learn those skills and strategies when you're 15, it's going to help you when you're 40. So, um, and sometimes medications are indicated for mental health concerns and, and some behavioral health disorders. Yeah, they are. And the other thing though, is that if we, as parents, if we recognize these things now and we recognize our, our teen or 20 something has anxiety and help them get the skills they need, whether it's through, I, I know our, um, local psychiatrist has has a a large practice and he also offers things like emotional skills classes. And so to help the kids get some of these tools and even in therapy, most of the parents I've talked to whose kids go to therapy for anxiety, it's, again, it's different for every kid, but it's not like it's 10 years of therapy. 
I know that in my family, we had a, you know, a year of therapy, whereas the adult, you know, my husband, and he talks about this, which I have permission to talk about this, <laughs> is that, you know, for him, it was years. And he's still working hard at learning all these tools and things because all the years that he survived without having the proper tools, he created all these detrimental coping strategies that, ha that now he has to learn to undo. Um, and it's just, it's a lot better for our kids and a lot easier for our kids if we can intervene when they are younger, when they are teenagers and let them know that, hey, yeah, this, this happens. This is a, a human body. It's a normal human reaction. What we want to do is get you some tools to manage that and to, to deal with that. And sometimes what I tell, tell families and kids, if, if people are averse to therapy, I sometimes refer to it as coaching. You know, you just, you need some skills and strategies, just like if you were playing baseball, you know, a professional baseball player doesn't just go out and play. They've got lots of coaches so that they can get better and learn how to play better. This just helps you know how to manage anxiety because especially if you have a true anxiety disorder that runs in my families and I, I've had difficulty with, the, the most helpful thing I ever heard from a therapist was, you're always going to have worry thoughts that come into your head. They're always going to come there. You can't help it. It's the way you're wired. What you can do is manage what you do with the worry. So if you have a thought that pops in your head, my house is going to burn down. I can go into a full-blown panic or I could say, yeah, my house could burn down. The chances that's going to happen right now is pretty small. Take a deep breath and let that pass. So those are kinds of skills that you can definitely teach kids and parents and, and it bodes well for the future to know how to manage, you know, all of us have worry thoughts and some of us more than others. So um, I, I absolutely think that, you know, behavioral health coaching, and it's really for functional improvement. Now, if you've got long-term trauma and there's a bunch of other, um, you know, sexual abuse, neglect, you know, poverty, um, you know, serious substance use, that's different. Mm -hmm. And that may require really specific kinds of therapies. Um, so again, I think that you can have somebody help tease out what do you, what do you need? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually, when you were talking about the thoughts, it reminded me a number of years ago, I was actually on a retreat and, uh, in the discussion, our thoughts were compared to a bird and it's like, okay, so there are electrical wires out there and you see a bird land on the electrical wire. Fine. You can see the bird and go on about your day, or you can open the window and get out some bird seed and try to entice that bird to come inside your house and fly around creating havoc and a mess all over the inside of your house. It's just like that with thoughts. Yep. That thought came through. Like you said, Leah, you know, it's here. Yep. That's a thought. Well, yeah, it could happen, but it's not likely. Okay. Let that go. Instead of pulling it in and hugging it tight and, and continuing that spiral around that thought and building up all the different scenarios and what you need to do and don't need to do. And every time something's happened. So I appreciate that because, um, I think that's a very freeing thing to say, yeah, this is normal. Thoughts come, thoughts go. And it's okay to just let them go. 
And the other thing, and, and, you know, we've kind of talked about the most serious things with suicide, you know, that that's a, a big thing. But um, the other thing that's really important for parents and, you know, all of us is that many people with behavioral health concerns, things like chronic worry, chronic depression, um, acute stress reactions have somatic symptoms, meaning physical symptoms. And that's where that you know, above the neck and below the neck, those are together because worry thoughts generate a lot of chemicals that generate physical things. So for example, you hear something worrisome and now you have diarrhea, you know, or I'm having headaches or I feel like I'm going to throw up. I have so many kids that have um, headaches and stomach aches. They are really common, particularly in elementary school but you certainly see them in, uh, you know, teenagers and you really need to ask. That's where I find those questions are really helpful because I can't tell you how many times I have kids that come in with, you know, shortness of breath, chest pain, abdominal pain, headache, where you could really go down the rabbit hole of physical, you know, now you've got, you know, they're getting MRIs or they're getting, you know, scopes or all kinds of really invasive procedures. And what somebody missed is mm, this is panic. And, and you've made the wrong diagnosis. And I think we all want to chase like, oh my God, I got to make sure it's not a brain tumor. But the likelihood of that small headaches because of anxiety and depression, that's common. So you have to kind of keep that and we call that differential diagnosis. When I'm thinking about things, what are all the possibilities? You know, behavioral health has to be in that when you're thinking about physical complaints. Okay, so I think at the crux of it, we want to, you know, wrap this up and say, I, what I hear you telling us as parents is number one, start at the beginning and set the stage for relationship in a home environment where it's okay and good to talk about your thoughts and feelings. And then remember and give our kids a little grace because they don't have a fully functioning adult brain. They are much more at the mercy of the amygdala because that prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, the decision-oriented part of the brain, is not fully formed until they're 25. And then when we're talking to our kids, we can use the sad, mad, worried one to five scale on each of those to help them express how they're feeling and help us gauge how they're doing. And if we see something that we're concerned about or we're getting a five from them on those things, then we can ask them. The question. I love the way you worded it, Leah. You said, you know, a lot of times when people are having feelings like you are, they think about killing themselves. Have you had those thoughts? And if they say yes, you can ask them, you know, if you then how bad is it? When you can go through first checking our own response, then ask them if they've made a plan. What does that plan look like? How likely are they to do that? And then we have, if we feel our kid is in danger, we can call 911 or go to the emergency room. Or what we can do if we are safe in that moment is call 800-273-TALK or text 741-741 and get trained personnel on the phone or on the text to actually help us through that. And we will have all of this and more in the show notes on the page. Um, Leah, I, I will also get, you mentioned a couple of resources. I will get those in there. Is there anything else? last that you wanted to say or any website that you wanted to refer listeners to? Sure. I, I think before I 
and before I forget, um, movies are wonderful. I just watched the Mr. Rogers, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. If people haven't seen that, it is not at all what I thought it was going to be. And what it is, is a lot about talking about feelings and adults, you know, talking about their feelings and understanding that kids have those. It is a beautifully done movie. The other one, and I'm totally blanking on the name of it, was the movie about emotions, the cartoon. I want to say it was a Pixar. Oh, yeah, it was a Pixar um, it, I want to say in and out. It I is. Think I think it is in and out and I'll look it up and make sure and put the right thing in the that show one, notes, but that was fabulous for that too. Well, it is such a good depiction of mood, you know, the depressed person. It's just like this flat, no energy. Um, certainly if there's a big change in your kid's performance, I mean, their job is school. If you have a kid that's been doing well and they're bombing school or they don't want to see their friends or they're sleeping too much, something's wrong. And, and it's really important to inquire in that. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, we just need to be there for our kids and show up and, and keep them safe and let them know that, you know, we're adults, we're here to help you. And if I don't know what to do, I know somebody that can help me and I will find somebody until you get the help you need. And a lot of my parents are like pit bulls for their kids because they have to be. And if you're not getting the help you need, keep asking, keep bothering until you get what you need. That's great. And I will also put a link to Judy and Jeffrey Davis's book that just real quick read that kind of helps us as parents wrap our minds around, oh, depression, addiction, and anxiety. Yes, they exist. And kind of how can I tell if it might be my kid and there might be a problem? And oh, yes, there are things I can do. It's kind of that great first step. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Leah, thank you so much for joining us here today and so much wisdom and just great information for us as parents. Well, this was like my first podcast, so I'm super excited. The, the other just real quick thing is um, parents really need to make sure that they're, they're, they're showing up in their best place. If you have mental illness, if, you know, or behavioral health concerns, if you have substance use disorders, get help because you can't help your kid if you're not well. Absolutely. And thank you, Mighty Parents, for showing up, for having the difficult conversations, for listening to things to make yourself a better, more informed parent. I appreciate you being here. I want to remind you, you can always go to mightyparenting.com for additional resources. And remember, if you are here, you are a mighty parent. You got this. And I will see you next week. 